Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm with Terry Fakes coming at you with another Minor Profit. You know, it's been kind of fun doing these Minor Profits over the last several weeks. How are you seeing the Minor Profits now versus how you might have been thinking about them a month ago? Well, I'm a big fan of the Minor Profits. I remember when I became a Christian, uh, it was a long time before I got into the Old Testament at all and an even longer time before I read any of the minor prophets or even knew what they were. But then when I read them, uh, I enjoyed it. And then I got a little historical background. And of course, that made it come to life a little more. So I'm I'm now a big fan of the minor prophets. But Cole, I have to say that the book of Zephaniah, which we will talk about today, may be one of the minors of the minors in terms of notoriety. Yeah, I think that's right. Of of the minor prophets, which are already relatively obscure, this one has got to be in the top one or two most obscure in the Old Testament. Why do you think that is? Well, some of it might have to do with the fact that Zephaniah is so close to Zechariah. And so you have Zechariah, which is a minor prophet, but it's a pretty major minor prophet. Yeah. And it's a lot longer, a lot more prominent, a lot more interaction with the New Testament. And then you have Zephaniah, and I wonder if it just gets subsumed under the name Zechariah. I think you're probably right, but it is a gem of a little book, just three chapters, and it does have important themes, but it also is just a beautiful little book. And it reminds me of another little gem of three chapters, the book of Habakkuk, another minor prophet that are just, they read in in such a delightful way, and the phrases are memorable. It's a delightful book. Yeah, whereas Habakkuk has gotten picked up, it's the popular book of the Minor Prophets now because it does have such a beautiful flow to it. It's preachable. It's teachable. Whoever's doing the PR for Zephaniah has not picked up quite the same interest as Habakkuk. And I think that'll become clear as we talk about it. But why, why do you think that is? Well, one thing that stands out to me is the first line of the prophecy in the book of Zephaniah is, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Tough to do a lot on Twitter and and Facebook with that. It's just a downer. Yeah, that one's not one that people uh, are really just itching to hear. Um, You know, the the most important thing to do with these minor prophets, especially one like Zephaniah, is to set it in its historical context. So especially we read an opening line like that. We want to know exactly what this is talking about. So. All of these are taking place in what we would consider first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, through the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, through the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Judah in, in Jerusalem in 586. What's going on in the world around Zephaniah? When is he when is he prophesying? What's happening in Israel? How do we begin to approach his prophecies? It's a great question, and it really makes the book make sense to know that Zephaniah, first of all, tells us when he is prophesying. In the first verse, it says that he, the word of the Lord came to him in the days of Josiah, who was the king of Judah, and he was the son of Ammon. This is the 7th century BC, so the 600s. So we're not very far away from when the Babylonians are going to destroy Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem in 586. This is in the 600s. So what's happening is you had two important kings of Judah in that century. The first one is Manasseh. He's not mentioned in this book, and you can understand why, because he's Josiah's grandfather, and he may be the worst 
the most evil king that Judah had. He ruled for 55 years from the very beginning of the 7th century in the 690s all the way down until 643. You can read about his exploits in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and it just reads like a rap sheet. He is a, was a horrible king, took Israel over that 55 years far away from God. And then Josiah, his grandson, comes in to uh, become king when he's eight years old. And it's probable that Zephaniah is prophesying right around the early part of Josiah's reign, because he didn't make huge changes when he was first king. Of course, he was eight years old. But when he was 27 years old, and I'm getting this from 2 Chronicles chapter 34, he began to turn his heart to the Lord and turn Israel, the Israelites' heart back to the Lord. So when he was 27 years old, he instituted great changes to turn the nation back to the Lord. Well, fortunately, he only lived another 12 years. He was killed in a battle with the Egyptians when he was 39 years old. But Josiah goes down in history as one of the really good kings. So Zephaniah is probably speaking in the first part of Josiah's reign, and they've just come off 55 years of complete idolatry. And so naturally, you'll see God speaking to his people about judgment. Yeah, we do have a lot of background in terms of what was going on in Israel at this time period because of the reign of Josiah. The other thing we have about Zephaniah that's unusual for the minor prophets is we have a little bit more uh, biographical information about him than we usually do because he gives us his genealogy here in verse one. So Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. So Manasseh is one of Hezekiah's sons. And here we have a great grandson or a great great grandson of Hezekiah, a great grandson of that generation of Manasseh. So it's likely that Zephaniah, although he's not in the royal line, he is from a royal family, and he right. probably was well-connected, probably was, from what we would consider, an influential part of uh, the Jerusalem ruling class. So th that's another interesting feature here. We, we do have several prophets that are from the either kingly families or from the uh, kind of elite families of Jerusalem. And then, like we talked about in several of these prophets, we know nothing about them. Uh, right. the, with with the prophet, prophet Amos, we know he was a shepherd and was called upon to begin prophesying. But here we have a prophet who is at least related to the people that he's prophesying about, which I think creates an even more interesting dynamic when you have somebody preaching only judgment, which is what you see in the first part of this book. And right. uh, then a little bit of a turn at the end. So Zephaniah starts out very negative. Judgment is coming. Everything is going to be swept away from the earth. And as opposed to some of the prophets, we don't have a local judgment here. We have a global judgment. That, that right. What Zephaniah is talking about is in big, sweeping, worldwide language, that the wrath of God, the day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming for all those who have forsaken the Lord across the whole face of the earth. That's how the book begins. So what do you see that's unique here to Zephaniah's prophecy? That's a great question, because I think 
you see these very broad statements, you know, the day of the Lord is near, I'll utterly sweep away everything. When you dive into it, as you read through chapter two, and you see the judgment on not just Judah for being unfaithful to God, but Judah's enemies for obviously being unfaithful for God, you realize that God is speaking in a global sense because it's not just a judgment on Judah, it's a judgment on the nations around. And if you think, as I do, that this prophecy was fulfilled the first time with the Babylonians in 586, that's what happened. They didn't just conquer Judah. They conquered nations all around that area. But I can't help thinking, Cole, as I read this, that I'm looking at a, at a short-term prophecy that was fulfilled by the Babylonians, but there are elements of this book, particularly at the end, which I know we'll get to, that make me think he's also has one eye on the coming of Christ and the ultimate judgment. I, I wonder if this is one of those dual fulfillment kind of prophecies, a short-term fulfillment, but a broader scope. What do you think? Yeah, that would definitely seem to be the case. You, you, most of the time you hear the day of the Lord, that's a repetitive prophecy. You see that prophecy being fulfilled in whatever immediate event is coming. So the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, you hear the day of the Lord language used in the New Testament, likely looking partially to the destruction of the temple in 70. And then you see it also to the end of the age when the final judgment of God is brought to earth. And so we read these prophecies with an eye towards the immediate context and an eye towards the broader context. And Zephaniah is one of the most consistent, um, he, he uses the phrase the day of the Lord throughout the entire of his three-chapter prophecy. And I think we should understand that immediately and more long-term. Now, one of the things that we wanted to make a connection between is Zephaniah is prophesying towards the kingdom of Judah. And if you remember in the episode we did on Amos, Amos was prophesying mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was prophesying that because they had trusted in other uh, sources of strength, because they had forsaken the Lord, because they were doing the imitation worship at the temple at Bethel, they would be judged by the Assyrians. And the day of the Lord would come, they would be destroyed. Well, Israel was destroyed and Judah wasn't. So in the reign of Hezekiah, they right. fend off because of the angel of the Lord, the attack of Sennacherib. But they didn't really learn their lesson long term. So now, 140 years later, we're seeing Judah repeat some of the same mistakes that Israel did. And consequently, we're seeing these prophets prophesy some very similar things that you'll find in the earlier prophets in the northern kingdom. That's a really good point is Amos prophesied it came true with the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom. Judah had a, had a faithful king at that time, Hezekiah, like you mentioned, and there's that beautiful story of God rescuing Judah miraculously, and so they, they were. But here's the interesting thing. After Hezekiah's time, I just got through telling you that as we open into the 600s, you get 55-year reign of Manasseh, an evil king. And I wonder, Cole, if, and the answer may be both and, but did Judah not learn their lesson because they had a leader? who was so bad for 55 years, or is this a fair judgment because the people followed that bad leader through that uh, couple of generations that, that he led them? You see both things happening in the Old Testament. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to read these stories and realize that the Israelites are being judged because of what their king did. 
And you think, well, that that doesn't make sense. But the king is a representative of the entire nation. And just because every person didn't do exactly what the king did, usually the society follows the king. You have a bad king. The nation of Israel is forsaking the Lord. They are running after other things and they're going to go the way of their leader. That's a great point, because, you know, something that people say to me sometimes, and this is a really good point, is during the reign of Manasseh, far and away, most of the Israelites did indeed engage idolatry. It's not like all the Israelites wanted to do the right thing and the king was bad. And so now they're all going to be punished. It really isn't that situation. But there were some Israelites who remained faithful. And yet they, too, will suffer the fate of the Babylonians invading. And that's an interesting theme in the Bible, and it's the theme of a remnant. In other words, in every age, when you see Israel being judged, God knows that there are people who are still faithful. And one of the interesting things about Zephaniah to me is that after the judgment language, in chapter 3, you get an acknowledgement. Chapter 3, verse 12. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. And we call that a remnant, meaning there are faithful people who will be caught up in the destruction of the overall nation, but it's not like God has abandoned them. God knows who they are, and he will use that remnant to lead into restoration. Yeah, one of the commentators points out that because Zephaniah gives his line at the first of uh, in the first verse of this prophecy and because later he talks about this remnant maybe we can infer and again this is not in the text but maybe we can infer that he and his family had been part of the faithful group of israelites who were still following the lord even when they had an evil king and uh, I, i don't think that's outside the question in terms of how would you have somebody like this come to the nation of Israel and have a leg to stand on when they're prophesying. I mean, so, so I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Zephaniah is embodying that message of even when things get bad in Israel, like you said, there's always this remnant of faithful believers who are counterculturally and to great cost, uh, both to them and to their families, most likely, standing up for what is right, even against an evil king of Israel. So Israel is supposed to be, or Judah at this point, is supposed to be a great God-fearing nation. And yet they are having to stand up to their own king to do what is right and honor God. That's something you see throughout all of history, right? We think when we think remnant, we think of faithful Christians in persecuted countries, but you don't have to be persecuted to be a faithful remnant. You just have to be doing what everybody else isn't doing and being sure that you are really honoring God. You're right. I think that this lesson from Zephaniah resonates to me in the church today and through all ages, but today, and that is, it's not a matter of uh, necessarily being persecuted, although I think that will happen. It's really a matter of simply choosing to be faithful, even when all around you are not. And I think that's that lesson really hits home to me that being faithful to God and being in the minority is not something to be distressed about. This has happened before and it will happen again. And one of the things that comes up in the book of Zephaniah is you have several prominent verses that are going to resonate with these themes that you see over and over again in the minor prophets. So in chapter one, verse 18, for example, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. That is about as extreme as it gets in the Old Testament in terms of judgment. And of mm. course, we know that in this moment, in this in this immediate context, he does not make an end to the world. And so that maybe clues us into the fact that some of these prophecies are looking towards the end of the world. But the tone really changes in the middle of this book, as, the, as often happens in these prophecies, where you have a little bit of judgment on Israel's enemies. And then in chapter three, starting in verse nine, you have a change towards the conversion of the nations and what God is ultimately going to do to the remnant. And this is where things start to get a little bit more hopeful is those people who do endure. And I'm thinking the connection here is really strong with the book of Revelation. Those right. who endure to the end, those are the ones that are going to be saved. Those who wait out, whether it's martyrdom, whether it's persecutions, whether it's praying and not hearing God answer your prayers, God actually is not going to forget those people. He's going to bring them through safely to be with him forever. And so you do see a little bit of a turn at the end of Zephaniah towards a restoration through the remnant. Well, and as you as we dive into that part, because there are some really powerful verses in that part, you might think to yourself, if you're facing the Babylonians coming in 586, why tack on 10 verses at the end with a hopeful prophecy of restoration? And I want you to think about it in this way, is the people during this time, largely, the whole nation did not repent. And of course, the judgment came about in the person of the Babylonians. But you, you think about this book was written, this prophecy was given by Zephaniah in the hopes that the people would repent. But God plays a deeper game than that. This book was probably most comforting to the people after the Babylonian captivity. When they look and they say, oh, Lord, you warned us. We sinned as a nation. We didn't repent. And here we are. And it sure looks like the end for us. I wonder if this prophecy was more for the people after the judgment to, re to remind them that God hasn't neglected you and he will restore your fortunes and how powerful that would have been. I think that's really the takeaway from this book is that message to the remnant, even after they've gone through everything that they had gone through post destruction of the temple. They're looking back at these words, especially at the very end of this book. And they're thinking, wow, that's what God still has in store for people who persevere to the end. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this book, and there aren't very many books like this, is there is no explicit quote of the book of Zephaniah in the New Testament. Now, that just means that there isn't a place where it says the prophet Zephaniah said, or there isn't so direct a quote that we can trace it back and know, oh, they're referring here to Zephaniah. Right. But there are allusions to the, the book of Zephaniah. And I want to point out one of these because I think it's just a really helpful way to see uh, the end of this book. So if you look at chapter three, starting in verse 15, it says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So that doesn't seem all that conspicuous when you read it in its context. But if you go to the New Testament, when Jesus is calling his disciples in the Gospel of John, he comes across Nathaniel. Nathaniel's call is really different than the other disciples because Nathaniel is a faithful Jew. He is 
someone and Jesus says in him, there is no guile. And he's sitting under a fig tree and Jesus sees him. He almost reads his thoughts and he tells him, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel is amazed and he shouts out, this is the king of Israel. Well, what you kind of find out when you study that passage is there is no other place where you see that exact phrase, king of Israel, used except these two passages. It's, it's so, really unusual. Right. Yeah. So what is Nathaniel doing saying this? Is this just happenstance or is he on to something? Well, in this in the context here in Zephaniah 3, God is promising to restore and to be in the midst of his remnant, those people who stay faithful through all kinds of apostasy, people who turn their back on God. And here he's taken away their judgments. He's in their midst. There shall never be again evil. And on that day, uh, it should be said in Jerusalem, fear not, let your hands not grow weak for the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And what Nathaniel realizes is he is a faithful Jew. He is somebody who is doing things right. And Jesus sees him. And he realizes that he's a prophet and he says, king of Israel, knowing the time has come for God to restore the remnant. And that actually leads to uh, what I think is a really powerful connection, although there's not a quotation. uh Oh, absolutely. But one thing I'd point out is it's interesting because the implication is very strong that Nathaniel is using that phrase because he read it in this text. It also is very strong that this text by that time and probably much before had been understood as a messianic prophecy as well, because Nathaniel is using that phrase in that way to Jesus as the Messiah. One of the things that that tips that off is because of the imagery that's used. And Mm -hmm. uh, you see that one of the rabbinic motifs is studying under the fig tree. So you're right. I think he probably is saying that because he has studied this. He's read this. He's he knows the scriptures well enough to point out not just to himself, but to everybody around. This is the guy. Well, and I think you had a fascinating insight when we were talking about this at one point about Nathaniel himself and the nation of Israel that I thought was really a striking parallel. Well, that that's the thing about the fig tree is it is a picture of Israel. You remember later, Jesus actually curses the fig tree because it's supposed to be bearing fruit, but it's not bearing fruit. And Nathaniel takes on the image of a true and faithful fig tree. He is a true and faithful Israelite in whom Jesus looks at and says, you are the picture of what a person waiting for the Messiah should be like. And then Nathaniel realizes, oh, now's the time when God has come to restore and comfort his people. This is the one who is mighty to save. And Nathaniel effectively is, is a representative of what faithful Israel would look like, much mm-hmm. like the remnant in this book. Exactly. And so that sets up what I think is probably the most famous verse in the book of Zephaniah. And I've just read the beginning of it in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. So this is a verse that's often thrown around now. It's not usually in its context, but it's such a beautiful description of what God is going to do to the people who wait for him and trust in him. But if you think about our situation as Christians, I was talking the other day about the idea of and just the biblical concept that we all stand under the judgment of God because we all have sinned. 
we all have rebelled against God. And of course, that's what makes the gospel the good news that it is, is Christ coming to redeem us. But you, as people who stand under judgment and have the joy of seeing redemption in Jesus Christ, this kind of language resonates with us as much as it would have with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save to, I remember me before Christ. And I remember coming to Christ feeling I need a savior. And this language I think should stir us as much as it stirred them. That's definitely true. The way the book ends just puts an exclamation point on that. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." That's a great description of what Jesus was doing, even down to the down to the detail of healing the lame and gathering the outcast. Uh, and if you think about the dispersion of the Jews across the world, God is gathering them together again in the Messiah. And he is bringing all of the threads back together to tie up history in his son. And so we see in the book of Ephesians, for example, in the book of Colossians, the theme of what God is doing in Christ is summing all things up or bringing all things together in him. Well, that was literally true for the Jews who had been scattered. And right. it is literally it is literally true now for the people who have been wandering away from God and who have been brought back. Exactly. Well, one final observation for me that it hits me in a personal way as a lesson in this book, and this is a little obscure, but in the Hebrew text of this book, the first word in this book is Yahweh, basically, Devar Adonai, the word of the Lord, Yahweh. And the last Hebrew word in this book is Yahweh. And if you think about it, this book begins and ends with God. And it is such what's called a theocentric book, meaning this book is all about God. And it occurred to me that if you were to put marker, we tend to put markers at the end of our lives. We call them gravestones. And if you put a marker at the end, at the beginning of my life, which was effectively when I came to Christ, as Ephesians said, before that, we were dead in our sins. We just didn't know it. But God made us alive with Christ. If you look at that act, which God did at the beginning of my life, and then if God could be the end then like this book, I think our lives could be bookended by God. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.